I had a vision when I was 12, and I saw a man on a flaming pie, and he said, you are Beatles with an A, and we are. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! Beatles Anthology Revisited I can remember is sitting on the pot on the top of the stairs shouting finished meet again don't know where don't know when my mother used to say that uh, because I was born the second world war started some sunny day I spent some time with mother up till about four then my father split, he was a merchant seaman, you know, you can imagine, in, and it was 1940s like in the war and all that. Always do, till the blue skies drive the dark clouds far away. My mum was a Catholic, dad was a Protestant. They got married quite late, I think they had me when they were like 40 or something, it was quite sort of late. At the time I was born, my father's job was driving a bus, and I lived in a two up and two down, 12 Arnold Grove. Don't know where, don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny My mum was a nurse. She was a midwife as well. And my dad was a cotton salesman. I was raised by my auntie. My father and my mother split when I was about four. I spent some time with my mother up till about four. Then I was brought up by an auntie. Dad uh, was a, um, he made cakes. So we always had sugar through the war. Uh, she ended up doing a lot of jobs because he left when I was three. He decided that was enough of that. And uh, so she did any down-home job she could get to feed and clothe me. My mother was um, from an Irish family called French. And uh, she had lots of brothers and sisters. My grandmother used to live in Albert Grove, which was next to Arnold Grove. I was terrible at school because I didn't spend much time there because I was also very sick as a kid. I had uh, peritonitis when I was six and a half, which is, just means burst appendix and you, you're going to die. And they said to my mother, you'll be dead three times, but there we are, we're still here. My dad was a musician, amateur musician, and uh, he would play piano around the house. 
We always had a piano. And I've got some lovely childhood memories of sort of lying on the floor and hearing him play. When my parents were younger, they used to have to listen on an old crystal radio set, sometimes known as the Cat's Whisker. John was, really loved his mother. I loved her too. And she played a little ukulele, which to this day, if I ever meet grown-ups, you know, who play ukuleles, I love them. Everybody has their party piece in Liverpool. You have to sing a song. And uh, my mother's was a uh, little drummer boy, she would sing to me. And I would sing Nobody's Child to her and she'd always cry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm nobody's child, <laughs> mom. <laughs> I'm nobody's child. I'm nobody's child. I'm like a flower. My mother had always she was a comedian and a singer, but not professional. But, you know, she used to get up in pubs and things like that. And she had a good voice, could do K-Star and all the rest of it. She used to do this little gag called, uh, that apparently she had done to me when I was one year old and two year old when she was still living with me, which is from the Disney movie, Want to know her secret? Promise not to tell. You're standing by a wishing well. My dad was the fella at the family parties who played the piano and knew all the tunes, you know, and everyone would buy him beer. They got these masks from Woolworths and after the end of the evening, a very hot, sweaty evening, obviously, you know, with a lot of people sort of all doing, I don't know, I was imagined doing Charleston, Chicago, it was all that era, with my dad on piano and his brother Jack on trombone. They were in their twenties, you know, and they were a little band, Jim Max Band it was called. I remember him saying to me, you know, he was quite young, he said, you know, learn the piano, you know, you'll always get invited to parties. That was all that was the big thing about learning the piano, you know. His father used to have a little band, you see, so there was a bit of music in his family, so he had a trumpet, and so we used to just hang out and try and play when the saints go marching in. Well, for a time, I say, until rock and roll came in, I was still thinking, naturally, that if I was going to go in music, cabaret would be the thing. You know, having heard my dad and having heard all of that kind of music up until then. What kind of kid was George? He was cocky, a cocky little guy. He, he had a, a, a good sense of himself. You know, he wasn't cowed by anything. He had a great haircut. He had this long hair that he quiffed back. We had a, had a friend, uh, Arthur, and he used to describe it as a fucking turban, like a fucking turban. And it did, it, it they looked like a great big, it was marvelous thing. So you were just an ordinary kid who couldn't get in places because you weren't famous. Teachers didn't like you. You know, rock and roll hadn't arrived yet. I always think of it as kind of Dickensian. And the school that I went to with George, incidentally, was was very Dickensian old place. In fact, Dickens had talked there. 
That's how Dickensian it was. I didn't like school, you know. It, that This is, um, say, the grammar school, the high school period up until 17. I went to a school with, uh, where Paul McCartney went. It was an old Victorian building, and it was all that old English sort of attitude. It was cold and, you know, very serious. And for the first time, you know, going in that school, it was very serious. You know, you had to do your maths and algebra and Latin and German, and, you know, you had to do all these things, and it was no fun anymore, you know. I didn't do too much schooling. In school, I did in a hospital and in day school, and uh, I went to school at five, and then at, at um, six and a half, I was very ill with peritonitis. They thought it was appendicitis. They rushed me to the hospital. It was too late. It was appendix. It exploded. So I was in hospital for a year then, and then it's convalescent and all that. So I didn't go back for two years, you know. And after that, I think that's when I really started to hate it. I know I didn't like it before I went to hospital, but then because you never caught up with the class, you know, there was no, like, no teacher going to take special care of me. And you had to try and get yourself up there, you know, and I always found it very hard, so it was easier to stay off. You know, my mother would pack me off to school and I'd just go and walk around the park with a couple of guys or whatever. And the... write little notes, with, and we always got caught because we couldn't spell. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you, you grew up kind of wanting to go somewhere else. It made you hungry. The people in Liverpool are or the north of England are quite funny but then you have to be in order to live there you know because it's a good place to come from like they say but not to actually be particularly Harry Harrison and Louise Harrison Harry was a bus driver who was a great great man lovely man um, but forthright very sort of straightforward he would run over a dog with his bus rather than swerve sure. and avoid and quite rightly too mm. probably because you might kill people but mm. I remember always being a little bit disturbed about that hardness in yeah. his character but he was a good lad Harry he was a real nice man sweetie and Louise she was a very quite hard lady but you know soft side but she was a hard lady I remember her pouring a pan of water on some fella she didn't want to answer the door to my mother was a real big fan of music and she was really happy about having the the guys around you know, and John was always keen to get out of his house because of um, his aunt Mimi was kind of very stern and strict and she embarrassed him. I remember going to John's house once when I first had met him. I was still at the Institute and we were trying to look like teddy boys, which was like that style in those days. And I must have looked pretty good because she was like, she didn't like me at all. She was really shocked. She said, look at him, you know, who is this? Bringing this boy around to this house. You look at him, he looks dreadful like a teddy boy. And he'd just say, shut up, Murray, shut up. She always wanted me to be a, a rugby type or a chemist, you know. And I was writing poetry and painting and singing since, uh, since she had me. And all the time I used to fight and say, look, I'm an artist. Don't bug me with all this maths and don't try and make me into a chemist or a vet I can't do it you know I have to be and I used to say don't you destroy my papers you know mm -hmm. I'd come home when I was 14 and she'd rooted all my things and thrown all my poetry out I said one day I'll be famous and you're gonna regret it the very nice lady at first you might think a bit cantankerous you know a bit sort of uh, uh, cantankerous but she know she wasn't she had a twinkle with it she was one of these women as I say just good and forthright I like that mm. in women I like them to stand up for themselves you know when I met John he had a lot of power, really. 
Sometimes, you know, they pick somebody to march behind on the way to war. Well, he was certainly out front. Well, it's one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready. Now go, cat, go, but don't you step on my blue suede shoes. I was the one that all the other boys' parents, including Paul's father, would say keep away from him because they knew what I was. The parents instinctively recognized what I was, which was a troublemaker, meaning I did not conform and I would influence their children, which I did. I did my best to disrupt every friend's home that there was, partly maybe out of envy that I didn't have this so-called home, but I did. I had an auntie and an uncle and a nice suburban home, thank you very much. And the fact that I wasn't tied to parents, that was the difference. I remembered my dad saying, to my mom when she would get tired because of her illness, why don't you go upstairs and have 40 winks? In the era I was brought up in post-war Britain, it wasn't the kind of thing that women talked about. Uh, and there were a lot of things that women didn't talk about. Uh, when she got ill, she just got ill. And when she went to hospital, she was just in hospital for a short while. And it was all uh, not spoken about. And it wasn't till much later that I learned that she had, in fact, died of breast cancer. And um, John and I shared that experience. My mother died when I was about 14, and his died shortly after, about, about a year or so after, I think. My mother, unfortunately, she was uh, run over by an off-duty policeman who was drunk at the time. But it, it was very hard for me at that time, and uh, I really had a chip on my shoulder, and it still comes out now and then, you know, because it's a... It's a strange life to lead. So this was a great bond John and I always had. Um, we both knew the pain of it, and we both knew that we had to put on a brave face because we were sort of teenage guys, and you didn't talk about that kind of thing where we came from. Well, that's all right, Mama. That's all right for you. You can't imagine a time when rock and roll was only one of the musics. A little man walked up and down and found an eating place in town. The first thing I can remember hearing was one meatball. Uh, and I don't know who did it, but it was uh, one meatball. One meatball. One meatball He could afford but one meatball No other love have I Whatever record was being played, you'd try and listen to it. You know, you couldn't even get a cup of sugar, let alone a rock and roll record. What was your first record? You made the first, the first record was The Laughing Policeman. Who's that by? The laughing policeman. <laughs> I don't know. I must take a trip to California. You'd listen to whatever was on the radio because the radio was the main thing in those days. Yeah. 
he got to hear people like Big Bill Brunsey. I think he might have even done a tour of England. Why did you trade heaven Just for these earthly things Why did you lose your little hello Baby, why'd you I was listening to a lot of country and western then. Skiffle was coming through. Freight train, freight train, going so fast. Freight train, freight train, going so fast. I don't know what train he's on. Won't you tell me where he's gone? First um, music I can remember hearing as um, guitar oriented music was. Jimmy Rogers, the singing brakeman. I was a big fan of his and actually Frankie Lane. You know, all those train songs and, uh, you know, Rock Island Line and all that stuff. in England was uh, they had what they called trad jazz, traditional jazz, which was really just like the English version of Dixieland and that type of thing. But there was uh, something that came out of that. Like in England, there was a band called Chris Barber Jazz Band. They had like upright bass and, you know, banjo and, you know, clarinets, that type of thing. So out of this band came the banjo player, Lonnie Donegan, and so he started this thing which was, they call skiffle. Which is a kind of folk music, American folk music, and he sort of jing 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 with washboards. With a guitar, acoustic guitar, and then a bass made out of a tea chest with a broom pole and a piece of string and a washboard. Sweet 16 goes to church just to see the boys. Laughs and screams and giggles at every little noise. Turns her face a little then turns her head a while But everybody knows she's only putting on the style She's putting on the agony, putting on the style And Lonnie Donegan was the other big influence. That's what made all the kids buy guitars at the time. He was very big in England. He had a big influence on lots of the rock and roll bands playing the guitar. And he made the sort of three or four piece group quite popular. He gave hope to know the kids
you know, you went to see those movies with Elvis or somebody in it when, when we were still in Liverpool, and you'd see everybody waiting to see him, right? And I'd be waiting there too. And they'd all scream when he came on the screen. Right? So we thought, that's a good job. Well, since my baby left me, well, I found a new place to dwell. Well, it's down at the end of Lonely Street, that heartbreak hotel where I'll be. I'll be just a lonely baby. Well, I'm so lonely. I'll be just so lonely. I could die. The first thing that meant something really is that I could call a root, musically speaking, was riding down the road on my bike and hearing Heartbreak Hotel coming out of somebody's house. I thought, Elvis Presley, Heartbreak Hotel, you know, how corny. And then I heard it, Heartbreak Hotel. I mean, that was the end. And my whole life changed from then on. You know. I was just completely shaken by it. Well, if your baby leaves you, you got to tell the tale. Well, just take a walk down the street to Heartbreak Hotel, where you will be. I remember being in school when I was a kid and uh, somebody had a picture in one of the musical papers uh, of Elvis. I think it was an advert for Heartbreak Hotel. And I just looked at it and just thought, he's just so good looking. He just looked perfect. When I was 16, Elvis was what was happening. A guy with long, greasy hair, wiggling his ass and singing Hound Dog and uh, That's Alright Mama and those early Sun records which I think are his great period. That's him. That is the guru we have been waiting for. The Messiah has arrived. You ain't nothing but a hound dog Time.
when I went to art school, I was at art school for five years. When I went to, this is sort of college, you know, I went in there, they would only allow jazz to be played. You know, they wouldn't allow rock and roll in, it was frowned upon those days. So we had to con them into letting us play rock and roll there on the record player by calling it blues, you know. Yes, it's me and I'm in love again. As I became a teenager, I was about, I think, about 12 or 13 when I first heard Fats Domino. I'm in love again. That was the first, I think, what I would call the first rock and roll record I ever heard. You made me cry when you said goodbye. Ain't that a shame? The first song I learned was Ain't That a Shame, an old rock hit, Fats Domino. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're gonna rock around the clock tonight. What is that right so? Um, even Bill Haley was around then. Little Richard blew my mind with his early stuff, you know, Tootie Fruity and Long Tall Sally and all of that. I mean, I'm still a mad Richard fan, you know. Gonna tell that Mary about Uncle John. He claimed he has a music, but he having a lot of fun, oh, baby. Somebody came back from Holland with a little Richard, long tall Sally, and slipping in a slide in before it was out in Britain. And that broke me up completely. You know. And after that, I just lost interest in everything else but rock and roll. I mean, you couldn't believe how great little Richard was. You know, co compared to what we were listening to, it was just that, that changed my life. The ones I like most in uh, America, the American artist was Richard, little Richard, and uh, Buddy Holly. There were lots of people coming up then, and one of them was Buddy Holly. We loved his vocal sound and we loved his guitar playing. But most of all, I think, was the fact that he actually wrote the stuff himself. That's what turned us on. I think one of the greatest people for me was Buddy Holly because, first of all, he sang, wrote his own tunes, was a guitar player, and I, uh, and he was very good, exceptionally good. There's about 20 songs we, we wrote at the very beginning. Every one of them was Buddy Holly. <laughs> he or what? Suddenly, he was a rock and roll hero who had glasses. favorite records around that time was one called Searching by the Coasters. That 
was the first record we ever heard of Big Coasters, and everything they did was really good. Well, be she's my baby. Be she's The first record I actually bought was Be Bopalula by Gene Vincent. Gene Vincent's Be Bopalula, one of the first songs I ever sang, and it's always been one of my all-time favorites. Yeah. first English record that was anywhere near anything was Move It by Cliff Richard. And before that, there'd be nothing. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Everybody's trying to be my baby now. I woke up last night, half past four, 15 women knocking at my door. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Everybody's trying to be my baby now. Carl Perkins, why mention them, I ask myself. Can you hear me? Carl Perkins was a huge influence at the time. Just heard his version of Blue Suede Shoes the other day, still the best. Mm. But he's too much. I mean, some of his stuff's still very undiscovered by a lot of people. Mm. Well, I'm gonna write a little letter, I'm gonna mail it to my local DJ. Yeah, it's a jumping little record, I want my jockey to play. Chuck Berry, uh, who to us was a great poet. I, st I think Chuck is a great American poet. When I was 16, those are the records I listened to at what we called milk bars in England, of them jukebox. And I could never quite see him as a human because there was one of my idols. It's Chuck Berry, isn't it? Chuck Berry. You know, how could you ever not be influenced by Chuck Berry being, you know, a teenager in the early 60s? You know, his guitar playing, everybody learned that, you know, everybody wanted to play like that. Just let me hear some of that rock and roll music Any old way you choose it It's got a backbeat, you can't lose it Any old time you use it It's got to be rock and roll music If you want to dance Suddenly rock and roll kind of burst on the scene. I had no idea about doing music as a way of life until rock and roll hit me. And then when rock and roll hit me, that changed my whole life. Basically, I'm just a Liverpudlian rock and roller. Rock and roll and all those musicians changed my life. It was so great. I mean, I like rock and roll, man. I, I don't like much else. There's nothing conceptually better than rock and roll. It's gotta be rock and roll music. If you want to dance with me, if you want to dance with me. So when Girl Can't Help It came along, instead of us looking at these old black and white movies and thinking, there's Clyde McFatter, there's Fats Domino, people we loved who were being treated quite shabbily, suddenly this was in colour and this was in widescreen and there's a famous bit at the beginning of Girl Can't Help It where Tom Ewell comes on and he sort of says, OK now. Pardon me. White screen. Color. 
gorgeous, lifelike color by Deluxe. And you cut to Jane Mansfield, and that's it, the game's over. She walks by, the men folks stand in rows. She can't help it, the girl can't help it. If she wins an eye, the grass lights turn to toes. She can't help it, the girl can't help it. If she got a lot of what they call the mold. She can't help it, the girl can't help it. The girl can't help it, she was born to please. She can't help it, the girl can't help it. And if she's got a bigger maid to squeeze. She can't help it. At uh, 13 and a half, yet again, I was sick again with TB. So they put me in hospital again for a year. While I was in the hospital the second time, to keep you busy, because you just had to lay there and hope your lungs got better in those days, they'd make you knit and they'd make you make baskets. And then once a week, this woman would bring in these instruments, triangles, cymbals, drums, and give them to the patients in the beds. And she'd have a big rolled-out uh, music sheet, about six foot across by about five foot uh, long. And the tunes would be Three Blind Mice and little tunes like that. And London Bridge is falling down, falling down. And if she hit the yellow dot, you'd have to hit the triangle. And if she hit the red one, it'd be the drum. And if it was the green one, it would be the cymbal. This was all very nice, and it kept us entertained. But I ended up... I wouldn't join the band unless she gave me a drum because I didn't particularly like the cymbal or the triangles and I couldn't play the recorder. So she'd come around every week and I'd only play drums being a spoiled brat. I made my first kit when I came out of hospital out of uh, biscuit tins and firewood. And My dad used to be a trumpet player himself and for my birthday he, he once bought me a trumpet from Rushworth and Drapers, one of the music stores in uh, Liverpool. And then when I was 16, I re-established a relationship with my mother for about four years. She taught me music. She first of all taught me the banjo, and from that I progressed to guitar. Uh, when I was 13, 14, I used to be at the back of the class drawing, trying to draw guitars. Big, cello, cutaway guitars with F-holes, little solid ones with pointy cutaways and rounded cutaways. And, you know, I was totally into guitars. And I heard about this kid who had a guitar, and it was £3.10. It was just a little acoustic, round, hall-type guitar. And I got the £3.10 off my mother. That was a lot of money in those days. But I suddenly figured out that I wouldn't be able to sing with this thing stuck in my mouth. So I went back to the shop and traded it in for a guitar. So that was the Zenith, the first guitar I ever had. I was about 16. I bought a 30 bob bass drum, 30 shillings. Huge mother, just a huge one-sided bass drum. In fact, you know, sometimes we'd travel the whole of Liverpool just to go to someone who knew a chord we didn't know. Um, remember once hearing about a bloke who knew B7. Now we knew E and we knew A, it was quite easy, but we didn't knew B7, we didn't know B7, that was kind of the missing part of the link, the other chord, the lost chord. So. And we got on the bus, trooped across Liverpool, changed a couple of buses, found this fella, and he showed us dum, 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 B7. We learned it off him, got back on the bus, went home to our mates and went, zing, got it. 
It's a joke in the family. Guitar's all right for a hobby, but it won't earn you any money. I mean, at one point in time, we did take jobs. It was embarrassing when people were always saying, you know, your relatives and people, why don't you get a job? My dad originally thought, and I naturally, you know, it was an obvious thing to think, I think. He just said, um, well, you're never going to make any money being in a group. And you, you may be enjoying yourself, but you've still got to have some money to help you live, you know. So he, never, so he said, get a job and do it in your spare time. I'd made my decision. I want to be a musician, right? I'm going to just play in bands. But of course, the whole family has a say in it. And, you know, in Liverpool, it's a very family-ish thing, though I've only had my mother and stepfather. I had a lot of uncles and aunties and grandparents. And they all, had, they all sat around the table and we discussed it, you know. And now they said... Oh, keep your trade, son, keep your trade. <laughs> you know, drumming's all right as a, as a laugh, you know, but it's... a hobby. It's a hobby, it's, but it's... How long will it last? Yeah, Paul and I used to just kind of get together, played a bit, but it was... We were just schoolboys then. There was no groups involved till a little bit later. When I was 18, I got my first kit. And how old were you when you were actually playing in a band? One month later. After you got the kit? Yeah, because <laughs> I was really lucky because if, in those days, if you had the instrument, you were in the band because <laughs> uh, it was skiffle, so it was, uh, it was real easy. So that's how I d the guy next door uh, was called Eddie Miles, but we formed the Eddie, Eddie Clayton Skiffle Group, and he was the guitarist, and my best friend Roy Trafford was uh, the other guitarist, and we got another guy on T-Chess bass, and we just went out there and played. I left that band, uh, joined another skiffle group, uh, and then I joined uh, a rock and roll band called Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. And we were still sort of folky rock. And then it started, we just went from there and everyone got uh, amplifiers, of course. And we, we were off. Paul met me the first day I did Bebopalula live on stage, okay? And a, f a mutual friend brought him to see my group called the Quarrymen. And we met and we talked after the show, and I, I saw he had talent, and he was playing guitar backstage and doing 20 Flight Rock by Eddie Cochran. And I turned around to him right then on first meeting and said, do you want to join the group? And he said, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think he said yes the next day, as I recall it. They were doing two sets. There was one in the afternoon when I first of all saw them, which was outdoors, and then there was to be one in the evening. I remember coming into the fate, um, and there was a bit of a band playing on a, on a platform over there somewhere. You could see sort of a little bit of a band and a small audience in front of them. And there was this guy up there with kind of curly, blondish hair in a checked shirt, pretty, looking pretty good for the time, quite fashionable kind of thing, singing um, a song that I loved, which is the Dell Vikings' Come Go With Me. But he, he, was, uh, he obviously didn't know the words. But it didn't matter because none of us knew the words anyway, so he could bluff it. Dun, dun, dun. So he's singing, come, go, come, da, dum, be, dum, be, dum, 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 lovely little refrain. It goes, then it goes, come, little darling, come and go with me, I love you, darling. But John was sort of, come, little darling, come and go with me, down, down, down to the penitentiary. He was pulling blues words, you know, and 
you know, he's pulling all of this and uh, so where he didn't know the lyrics, he'd just fill in with blues things. But I kind of, I, I noticed this and thought, that's clever, you know, and he's singing good. So they went into the village hall where the evening gig was to be and John had um, got hold of some beer from somewhere and was uh, having a little drink and um, we were sitting around and just playing various songs and I played a song, an early Eddie Cochran song, which was called 20 Flight Rock. So I was doing this backstage of this Walton thing and I knew the words to 20 Flight Rock all the way through. Eddie Cochran. Great little in tune at the time. Not many people knew it, so it's very cool of me to know it even. With a record machine When it comes to rockin' She's the queen Pull up the dance On a Saturday night All alone where I can hold her tight But she lives on the 20th floor of town The elevator's broken down So I walk one and I must have done it quite well because uh, a couple of days later I was cycling around Walton and um, one of the friends, a guy called Pete Shotton, uh, cycled up to me and said, hey, we were talking about you, you know, we enjoyed that 20 flight rock and uh, would you like to be in the band, you know? So I said, I'll get back to you on that one and a couple of days later I, I did and said, yeah, you know what, it wouldn't be a bad idea. I met Paul when I was about 16, I think. I was playing with this group at a church social, agnostic church social, and he just came up, cause to, you know, to watch. I, w I went with a friend of mine whose name was Ivan. He's a good friend of ours, you see, and I met him years ago. I was at school with Ivan, and I went to a village fete. You know about village fetes? Yeah, yeah I think, yeah. They are. I went with Ivan, and the group that was on the fete one of them, or a few of them rather, were friends of Ivan's, and that was John and a couple of his mates. And they were in a little group then, playing... Well, a large group, Paul, there's about 14 of us, I think. Little in stature, Little in name, I'd say, Paul, but rather, rather gross. Large, large by number, yes. Large by number. We had banjos, things like that. Washboards, and... skiffle boots, the whole lot. It was a skiffle group, you see, which I don't know whether you know about those over here, but they're sort of folk groups. And uh, they used to play American folk songs and things, and Liverpool folk songs. And he knew somebody that I knew, and they introduced us, and he knew the words to one of the songs that I didn't know. I said, do you want to join the group? And he did. And then George came about a year later, you know. I joined the group, and then George joined because I knew George from school. And, uh, you know, we, we've known each other quite a long time now. I can vouch for that. 56, I think, was when I first got a guitar. That was the same time I met Paul. McCartney in school, who I found out because he used to live near me. I used to meet him because we used to take the same bus ride home. And uh, we bought guitars and got together. I originally lived in Speak and was a neighbour of George's. Oh. And we both went to the Institute. Yeah. So we both used to get the same bus to school and we'd occasionally sit with each other and chat mm -hmm. and that. And he and I learned guitar together through from the same guitar book, George and I. Well, I met Paul when I was 12. Uh, he must have been 13. I met uh, John 
because a guy in the same class as Paul was a friend of John's, and John, who was, uh, I think, a year older than Paul, he happened to be going the place next door to the school uh, Paul and I went, which was the uh, art college. I met John as soon as Paul met him, or more or less a week or two after, and that was it, really. Paul introduced me to George, and I, met, I listened to him play, and said, play raunchy, or whatever the old story is, and I let him in. I said, OK, you come in, and that was the, that was the three of us then, and then the rest of the group was thrown out gradually. I got George in. He was a school friend of mine. Yeah. He was just some kid who happened to be able to play raunchy. We needed a good guitar player. Both uh, John and I play a bit of guitar, but we couldn't really solo. We weren't that good. And I said, I know this guy. He's a bit young, but he's good. Uh, John said, well, you know, let's meet him. He's come on. So I, I said to George, you want to go meet these guys I'm in a group with, you know? So yeah. So he brought his guitar and we were on the top deck of a double-decker bus in Liverpool, around where John lived, a place called Wilton. And nobody was on the bus late at night. And uh, John said, well, go on, and let's see you play to George. I said, go on, go on, get your guitar out. So George unpacked his guitar, got it out, and he played this thing called Raunchy. They could play. Dun, 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 dun. He's in. And that was it. Well, no, it wasn't actually that sudden, because that, that committee that was the after audition. me. That was the audition on the top of the bus. And then about a week later, we were kind of, well, what do you think? You know, I mean, I think he's good and all that. And they sort of said, yeah, man, it'd be great, you know. So then George was brought along to gigs. And he was in the group. He played it on the top of a bus, upstairs on a bus one time, going up. And I said, this is my little friend, you know. He's my little friend from school. Hope you don't hate him too much. He's not very old yet. <laughs> you know, and it was, it was a bit of a shame, because he was a bit young. I met Paul because he went to the same school as me and I was in the first year and he was in the second year and uh, we used to go home on the same bus because he lived by me so I just got to know him like that and then uh, we got guitars later on and then so Paul got to know John and I got to know John through Paul. First thing we ever recorded was That'll Be The Day, a Buddy Holly song, and one of Paul's called uh, In Spite Of All The Danger. And somewhere, it might be around, it's in Liverpool, somewhere that record, that's the actual first recording we ever made. Actually, this was pre-Beatles. This was John, George, and myself, and a couple of other guys, a pianist called Duff, and Colin, the drummer. And um, we went down to a little studio in uh, Kensington in Liverpool, and we paid a pound each to make this little shellac recording. And uh, the idea was that we'd keep it, each of us, for a week, 
So I had it for a week, John had it for a week, um, George had it for a week, and Duff had it for 23 years. George and I live very near each other in Liverpool. So, in fact, we were just a bus stop away from each other. I'd get on the bus and then the stop afterwards, George would get on. So being quite close in age, we'd sit together and we'd talk about stuff and that. Um, in fact, he was, I think, about one and a half years younger than me. That's quite a big age difference at that time. So I suppose I used to talk down to him a little bit, as you do to a sort of kid who's one and a half years younger than him, when he's sort of 14 and a half and I'm sort of 16, you know. Might have been a failing of mine to tend to sort of talk down to him because I'd known him as a younger kid. He was always uh, nine months older than I. Even now, he's still nine months older than <laughs> me. George was ten years younger than me or some shit like that, and I couldn't be bothered with him when he first came round. He used to follow me round like a bloody kid, you know, hanging around all the time. I couldn't be bothered, you know. It, it took me years to, to come round to him, you know, to start considering him as an equal or anything. I mean, he was a kid who played guitar and he was a friend of Paul's and made it all easier, you know. He said that you idolised him as a young boy, <laughs> that you thought... Well, that's what he thought. And you didn't? Well, I liked him very much. He was, he was a groove. He was a good lad. But at the same time, he misread me. He didn't realise who I was. And this was one of the main faults of, of John and Paul. In very early days of the Beatles, John and I used to take time off school and go home to my house, sagging off as we used to call it. And uh, we'd go to my house and I used to prepare a pipe full of Typhoo tea. My dad never left any tobacco around, he left empty pipes around. So I used to smoke Typhoo tea. <laughs> <laughs> and we used to sit around being very artsy and sort of think of ourselves as Dylan Thomas or someone, you know. And we started writing together then. Instead of going to school, I'd go down to his place. He had a piano, you know. And if I'd started something, or he'd started something, we'd, we'd say, here, I've got this, and he'd say, I've got this, and we'd start helping each other write our own songs like that. Well, sometimes you'd finish one, or you'd virtually finish it, you know, and all you needed was a little touch or a little, you know, why don't you do that instead kind of stuff, right? So any combination of the two of us writing, that's how we wrote, including completely separately and completely started from scratch, let's write one about this cup, you know where we'd have no inspiration, but we wanted to write something. Let's write one like, let's write one like that record that we like. Sometimes I'd borrow a tape recorder and Grundig with a little green eye, and we'd sort of go around to my house and try and record little things. I still remember doing Hallelujah, I Just Love Her So, because I had the Eddie Cochran record. <laughs> but those are very much home demos, very bad quality. But I think a couple of those still exist.
Somehow we managed to get rid of them. So there was only really left was just John, Paul and I. We used to show up for gigs with just three guitars and the, uh, the person booking us would say, um, where's the drums then? And to cover this eventuality, we say, the rhythm's in the guitars. Sit there and smile a lot and bluff it out, you know, go, oh, there was not a lot you could say to that, you know. Rhythm's in the guitars. And then we just really try and make them very rhythmic to prove our point. We once tried to do this audition for Carol Levis. There was this guy, Carol Levis Discoveries, and he, I think, must have been a con man because nobody ever won. You just kept going on and on and on, and he had all these free talents, you see. Mm. He sold tickets to the theatres and uh, had all these free artists coming on. And at the end of the show, the clapometer would tell you who'd won, and you'd come back next week and go into another one. Mm. We just did one of those in Manchester. Manchester. The Ardwick Empire in Manchester, where... Uh, and I remember going on the train for Liverpool and rehearsing what we were going to do. And John was going to... John didn't have a guitar for some reason. He probably sold it or bust it or something, I don't know. But George and I had ours. Okay, there's just the two of us with the guitars, and as it happened, it looked good because Paul was like left handed and I was right handed and still am. And John was in the middle, and like John stood there with a hand on each shoulder, you know, think it over what you just said. Ba, ba, ba. Me and George, John would do the lead. So John thought, well, I'll tell you what I'll do, I'll put an arm around each of you. Uh, and Paul and I with our guitars, one this way, one that way, doing mm. the backup voices. That was Johnny and the Moondogs. And we did Think It Over. Think It Over, me and George, only in the same key. And, um, and then we did um, Rave On. So we went, we did it, he put his arms around us and stuff, and it was okay, we didn't win, as usual. But I believe that day, some unfortunate person in that uh, theatre was relieved of his guitar.
we had uh, this guy, Stuart Sutcliffe, who used to be in the art college with John. When we used to do the uh, art college dances, then he used to always be hanging about with us. Stuart was John's friend, mainly, from art college. Stuart was a very good painter. We were all slightly jealous of John's friendship. John being a little bit older, certainly, than me, certainly than George. He was a little bit, you know, he wanted to sit next to him on a bus and stuff, like, he's the older fellow, you know, it's just the way it was. Now, so when, so when Stuart came in, it was a little bit of a sort of, he was sort of taking a little bit of that position away from us. We sort of had to take a little bit of a um, back seat. Later, Stuart's, the famous stories where he sold his painting to John Moore exhibition or something like that. So the question was, what do you do with 75 quid? So we all reminded him over a coffee that that was just about what Hofner bases cost. <laughs> Funny you should win that amount, Stu. We talked him into buying a bass guitar and taught him a few 12-bar tunes. So he bought a big Hofner that kind of dwarfed him, really, because he wasn't that big. It was this massive big Hofner. Now, the trouble was he could not play. Stuke couldn't play bass and he had his back to it, that's all stories. Occasionally it was a bit embarrassing, he didn't, you know, if he had a lot of changes to it, he was... But he knew that too, that's why, you know, he was never really that at ease being in the band. But it was better to have a bass player who um, couldn't play than to not have a bass player at all. came up with the name Beatles and what does it really mean? John thought of the name Beatles and he'll tell you about it now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, just, it means Beatles, doesn't it? You know, if that's just a name, it, you know, like shoe. Shoe. The shoes. You see, we could have been called the shoes for all you know. Where did the name Beatles originate? Uh, John thought of it first of all, just as a name, just for a group, you know. We just didn't have any name. Oh, well, yeah, we did have a name, but we had about ten of them a week, you know, and we didn't like this idea, so we had to settle on one particular name. And John came up with the name Beatles one night, and he sort of explained how it was spelt with an E-A, and we said, oh, yes, it's a joke. Where did the name Beatle come from? Uh, well, we, all, we were thinking of a name a long time ago for the group, you know, and uh, we were just racking our brains for names, and John came up with this the name Beatles, and it was good because it was sort of the insect, and then it also was a pun, you know, B-A-T, 
on the beat. So, you know, we just liked the name and we kept it. I understand you were the one that was responsible for uh, the name of the group, the Beatles. Yeah. Could you tell us exactly how you uh, decided upon that name? Well, I remember the other day when somebody mentioned the crickets at a press conference. I've forgotten all about that. Um, I was looking for a name like the crickets that meant two things. And from crickets, I got the Beatles. And I changed the B-E-A because it didn't mean two things on its own without B-E-T-L-E-S. didn't mean two things. So I changed the A. I had the E to the A. And it meant two things then. What two things specifically? The beat, well, the music? Yeah. I mean, it, it didn't have to mean two things, but it said, you know, it, it was beat and Beatles. And when you, when you said it, people thought of crawly things. And when you read it, it was beat music. In England, there's the game cricket. So you see, and we knew about we knew about the little chirpy, you know, um, hoppity goes to town type crickets. We knew about them. So we thought they've been brilliant. They've really got this amazing double meaning name of like the game and the bug. So this is great. So we thought this is brilliant. We thought, well, we've got to do this. So the, uh, John and uh, Stuart came up with this name that the rest of us hated. It's Beatles, but spoke with an A, you know. We said, well. Why, you know? So, well, you know, because it's a bug and it's got a double meaning, just like the crickets. Well, there's always been stories on who invented the name and there's the versions about how we wanted it to, like the crickets and this sort of thing. But I always <clears throat> got the impression when they came that John and Stuart were together that, the, that night of the next morning when it came out, oh, we've got a good name. And then in years following, it was always taken that John thought of the name. but. I would say that Stuart Sutcliffe had a lot to do with it. We'll give it 50-50 to Sutcliffe Lennon. John put this thing in um, the Mersey Beat, right, which was also started by Bill Harry, who went to art college with John, just saying that uh, this little guy appeared on a flaming pie, you know, in the sky and said, let there be Beatles, with an A. I used to write a thing called Beat Coma, like I used to have my Beach Coma in the Express, and I used to have a column every week called Beat Coma. And then they asked me to write the story of the Beatles, and that's when I was in the Alan Williams's club, uh, Jacaranda, and I was writing with George, uh, you know, a man came on a flaming pie, because the, even then they were saying, how do you get the name Beatles, Bill Harry? said, look, they're always asking me that, why don't you tell them how you got the name? So I wrote this, there was an uncertain man, and he came up, I was still doing like from school, yeah. all this imitation Bible, and he came and said, you are Beatles with an A, and man came on a flaming pie from the sky and said, you are Beatles with an A, and thence they were, and forthcoming there was a drummer of great renown and five foot high, and all, all that kind of jazz, you know. I've seen you interviewed many times, television, screen, watched your films. One question I don't think you've been asked, you probably have, I don't know, why are you called the Beatles? Ah, why not?
When we started off, um, we had a manager in Liverpool called Alan Williams, who was a small bloke, a uh, little sort of high voice, little Welsh accent. Yeah, right, lads. And he was, he was a smashing little bloke, a great motivator, Alan, you know, we liked him a lot. But we used to take the mickey out of him, you know. Uh, they all used to hang out the jacaranda. I used to let them rehearse in the basement for free. And I thought, well, these are great, these, these groups are great. Rory Storm, uh, Jerry Marsden, uh, a group called uh, The Big Three. And we had these art students used to hang around the jacaranda. They used to, you know, miss lectures. And amongst them uh, who became friends was Stuart Sutcliffe and uh, John Lennon. And knowing that uh, Stuart and John were from the art school, I asked them would they redecorate the ladies' toilets, which they agreed for a fee of £10. So the first money I ever paid the Beatles was £10 to uh, paint the ladies' toilet. And they made such an awful mess of it. I preferred the graffiti. And he eventually got us an audition that was held at one of his clubs called the Blue Angel. And um, it was for Larry Parnes, who had a big stable, so-called, of rock stars down in London. And so this was like a big opening, you know, to, to, to get this audition. And then Larry Parnes, which I mentioned earlier, wanted me to set up an audition uh, for Liverpool groups to be a backing group for Billy Fury. And I thought, well, I'm going to throw the Beatles in at the deep end here uh, with uh, Stuart Sutcliffe, even though, you know, he wasn't a very good musician, bass player. And the drummer he got was a guy called Tommy Moore, who was 10 years older than any of them. So there was a generation gap. What was uh, it like being a Beatle in those days? Well... Just the same as I feel now, downhearted. You know, we weren't making any headway at the time, like... He was a very good drummer, but John used to crucify him with his, uh, his sarcastic wit. And we had the auditions. Oh, God, there were so many Liverpool groups there. Anyway, he held these auditions in conjunction with Larry Barnes, whatever, and we were one of the bands. So we showed up there, half the, the groups in Liverpool showed up there. I think all the groups in Liverpool showed up that day. And there were photos being taken as a record, you know, this is us at the audition, this is something for Larry to take a look at or whatever. And we always, unfortunately, had to ask Stuart to sort of turn a little bit away from the camera or say to him, look, don't go... Because he couldn't play that well. We might be in A and he might be in A-flat and we thought someone would spot this because we always looked, see where people were on the guitars, see where they... So we'd ask him to sort of turn away a bit. And so there are a few photos with Stuart, you know, moodily with his back to the camera, you know. That was the reason there. So Stuart had to do that whenever they were taking photos. But he soon caught up, you know, and we got, we got, to, we passed that audition. I think Larry picked up quite a few Liverpool groups at that audition. And um, our only disappointment was though, the, all, the, all the people in his stable were like Marty Wilde. They all had kind of very furious names, Billy Fury. Somebody tempest, storm, hurricane. They were all tempestuous names, you know. There's Ron Witcherly, 17, known to his fans as Billy Fury, guaranteed a thousand pounds in his first year. Roy Taylor, 18, alias Vince Eager, 5,000 pounds by his fifth year. And of course, we thought, well, this would be great, you know. Well, we ended up with this bloke called Johnny Gentle. <laughs> Some slight disappointment in the name department there. 
John Askew or Johnny Gentle, 22, from Merseyside, and Duffy Power, real name Raymond Howard, 17. All eager power, gentle fury in the lucrative business, as someone said, of putting teenage growing pains to music. Do you rechristen all your boys? Oh, yes, I think this is terribly important. Um, otherwise, they, they would go on the stage with peculiar names that wouldn't be part of their makeup. But he said, he said, um, well, what's your name then? And John was the lead singer in, uh, for this audition. He'd, and at that time, he pretty much was. He'd said, um, he said, uh, John, John Lennon. He said, okay, well, you can be Long John Silver. <laughs> and it can be and the Silver Beatles. Long John and the Silver Beatles. Great. We all went, <laughs> yeah, great. Well, you know, we do anything for the job. So that's where we became Long John and the Silver Beatles. Then, of course, because we were really now truly professional, we now could do what we'd been toying with for a long time, which was changing the names. So um, I became Paul Ramon for some reason. I thought it was a very exotic French-sounding name. Stuart became Stuart. Stuart de Stahl, who was Stuart Sutcliffe. He called himself after an artist called de Stahl. Because he liked Nicholas de Stahl, who's a, a, an abstract expressionist painter. And I was Carl Harrison. And um, it's funny, really. It doesn't sound like a stage name now. It's just that I loved Carl Perkins. And John Lennon. In this Beatle book, it says I was called Johnny Silver. Never, because I could never find one I liked better than my own. John was Long John. They, people, people have since said, oh, John didn't change his name. He was very suave. Let me tell you, he was Long John. None of this, he didn't change his name. It drives me crazy. Oh, I, that was the only thing I ever clung on to. I never changed my name. I mean, we all went off this idea after that tour and all reverted back to type, you know, and became... We, we, we thought, no, we can't have funny names, you know. And Pon said, uh, yes, we'll have the group called uh, The Beatles. He wanted The Beatles to back uh, a group called Duffy Power and Johnny Gentle on a tour of Scotland. We made a contract with somebody and we did the tour of Scotland and that's where we made the money. Then we started making a few, few shillings, you know. We went with a guy called Johnny Gentle for this tour of Scotland. Wendy, Wendy, when, Wendy, Wendy, when, Wendy, Wendy, when, Wendy, Wendy, when I hold you, I don't want cry if you were to go for I love you need you oh Wendy I need you he was a good lad you know we were we were quite in awe of him because say you've got to remember that we were very young and we did we knew nothing at all about the business and to us even though looking back on it Johnny was probably just about as inexperienced as we were. So he was smashing, he was a good lad, he was very supportive, and he said, don't worry, you know, it'll be all right and stuff, and uh, we got on quite well with him. Johnny Gentle was very nice, and he had, you know, like, the, the suit that made him look like the pop star. It's funny, because nobody really, in those days, all you had to do is work for Larry Pons, and then they'd, they'd just print up those pictures of you and put you on a tour, and it was like as if they were supposed to be famous. The Beatles, they couldn't fall in right away with my complete act. I said, right, well, you don't know that one, but you know that one. 
what do you know that maybe I know? And then they started giving me a bit of their repertoire. So we made an act up of half of the songs that they knew that they'd been using and half the songs that I sang that they knew. There was I Need Your Love Tonight, Presley number, Buddy Holly's It Doesn't Matter Anymore, Ricky Nelson's Poor Little Fool I used, Clarence Frogman Henry's I Don't Know Why I Love You But I Do. My act was only about six or seven songs and then they played for an hour after. There was one uh, gig that we were playing uh, in Scotland and for some reason Johnny Gentle decided to drive uh, the van to the gig and they went down a one-way street and they crashed into a car and all the lads were in the back of the van with all the instruments and guitar cases and this guitar case slid with the impact and hit poor Tommy Moore, the drummer, right in the mouth and knocked all his front teeth out. So he was taken to hospital, which John Lennon thought was hilarious, and went on to play the gig. Paul fancied his chances at playing drums, but Duncan McKenna wouldn't have any of it. So they had to go back to the hospital and persuade Tommy uh, to play the gig that night. So John Lennon was in hysterics seeing this poor lad in agony playing with his mouth all strapped up and bandaged. <laughs> yeah. When I came back to Liverpool and uh, just didn't play anymore, because on top of that, somebody walked away with me drums from uh, Alan's club. Someone stole your drums? Somebody, you know, half of them, like, and um, that left me a bit uh, puzzled what to do about it. In the meantime, I just considered it was no use to me, so I gave it up. At the end of the tour, Tommy came home on his own and cursing and saying that he'd never, ever play with the Beatles again. And when he came back from the tour, he was so fed up and annoyed with John Lennon. Like, he used to tell me stories. John and Paul always took the best rooms for themselves. And then, I think it was his, um, his live-in wife, I don't think he was married, and she said, you're not playing with those bloody Beatles anymore. Get yourself a proper job. What job did you do immediately after you left the Beatles? I went back to Bottle Wakes. Garrison Bottle Wakes. The Bottle Wakes? Yeah. What, what job were you doing? Forklift driver. So poor Tommy, at the height of the Beatles' fame, he was a forklift truck driver in Garston. But he wouldn't have lasted anyway. But anyway, that was... It was a pretty pathetic tour. By the end of it, we were broke. We had no money. We were all cold and freezing and, you know, just miserable and... And that was it, you know, we all came back to Liverpool and nothing happened, really. We didn't really know, I felt really sad because we were like 
orphans or something. We didn't have it. Our shoes were all full of holes and our trousers were a mess. And we didn't have uniforms, you know. And this guy, Larry Pond's fellow, uh, Johnny Gentle, you know, he did have this posh suit and stuff. And I remember trying to play Won't You Wear My Ring or something around your neck. That's what he was doing. One of these Elvis tunes, remember. And we were crummy. The band was horrible, you know. We were really an embarrassment. We didn't have amplifiers or anything. It was an invaluable experience for us because then after that we knew it was no breeze. You had to work hard, you know, and you had to sort out where the money was coming from and stuff like that. So it taught us a lot of lessons. But the audiences were great. They were wild and woolly often, you know. But um, it was all very important. You know, it kind of gave us the reality of what it could be like. And uh, I suppose it prepared us for things to come. When we were auditioning for Larry Parnes, when we got the Johnny Gentle gig, right, then uh, it was a different drummer. That was Our drummer again didn't show up. We got Johnny Hutch from the Big Three sat in for us. But from that, we got the gig in Hamburg. You said you'd be getting £15 a week. Now, £15 a week was more than what my dad earned. This is what I was going to be expecting to earn as a teacher. And my teachers in school didn't earn much more than that, you know. So £15 was like a really a true offer. Mm -hmm. It was like you suddenly had found a profession. Everybody hung around in this club called the Jacaranda, which was owned by Alan Williams. And that was the place in Liverpool. And he, like, had had these steel bands on and the rock bands. He ran all the bands in Liverpool. And so we started hanging around there before we were really formed a band, you know, when there was just me, Paul and George. And we were always looking for drummers. He used to let us practice downstairs and then he let us play a, a few dances. And uh, he first took us to Hamburg. This band called uh, Derry and the Seniors, they got offered this job to go to London, give up your jobs and come to London and you go in with Larry, right? And so they all gave up their jobs and then they didn't get a, they didn't get a gig. So they were like a bit pissed off at that. So I remember them saying, we're going to London, we're gonna we'll get that Ponzi and beat, beat him up. So Alan Williams, who was the club owner who did the audition and it was sort of, you know, he was probably the first big groupie of Liverpool. He drove them to London and said, well, bring your instruments, lads. And, uh, you know, you never know, he could get a gig. So he got him a gig in the Two Eyes in, in London. Uh, so <clears throat> they were playing there, and this fellow, Bruno Koschmieder, from this club in Hamburg, right? I think it was him, and he saw them and, and booked them to go to Germany. And then later he sent a message saying, I want another band, because we were probably so cheap. Send us another band. So this Alan Williams came to us and said, Okay, lads, you can have this job in Germany. The only problem is you've got to be five people. He's asked for a five-piece band. At that point, Paul was the drummer because all the drummers didn't show up. And so the only way we could get to Hamburg, we had to have a drummer. And we just heard that this guy was, we, we knew of this guy who was living at his mother's house who had a club in it, and he had a drum kit. So we thought, okay, well, we'll get a drummer. Where do we get a drummer from? Mm -hmm. I said, well, I remember there's this guy I met who just got a drum kit for Christmas. His name's Pete Best. Pete's um, good mate. His mum had a club where we played, you know. He was known on Merseyside as mean, moody, and magnificent. <laughs> Pete Best. Yeah. And then we had all sorts of different drummers all the time, because they, 
people who own drum kits were far and few between. It was an expensive oh. item. And they were usually idiots, you know. We got Pete Best just because we needed a drummer the next day to go to Hamburg. He came down to the Jacaranda Club. We did a quick audition with him. And we just grabbed him, auditioned him, and he could keep one beat going for long enough. And jumped in the van and went to Hamburg. I had my own band of blackjacks, which formulated through the Casbah. Um, I came down, I was watching, you know, kids playing rock and roll in my own home cellar. And they'd done a tour of Scotland, and they had the offer through Alan Williams, who was a promoter in Liverpool, to take the, the Beatles uh, to Germany, to Hamburg. Tommy, Tommy Moore, who was the original drummer with the band, Tommy didn't want to go to Hamburg. Uh, they'd seen me playing drums and knew what it was about. And I got a phone call from Paul. This would be around about the middle of August 1960. And he said, Pete, do I have the to go to Germany? How do you feel about it, basically? And uh, I said, I'll check it out with my own boys. And my own boys turned around and said, look, Pete, we don't want to be professional. You know, go with our blessings. And so I phoned Paul back. And uh, he said, fine, come down and audition. Went down the following day, played about six numbers. And they went away in a corner and, you know, mooting amongst themselves. And just as they made the decision, Alan Williams came through the door. And they said, Alan, you know, meet the new drummer. This is Pete. And Alan turned around and said, yes, he said, it was already a foregone conclusion. We knew what you were about. Uh, we had to make you audition just in case you asked for more money. So that was how I actually got to join them. timing wrong there was no one there to meet us but we could find Hamburg off the map but then trying to find St. Pauli the little district and Reaper Bomb but everyone knew oh Reaper man you're this day you're going to miss they don't keep it to other house okay so we went down we found the street and the club but it was all closed but we were there with no hotel or anything and it was now bedtime yeah so we managed to shake up someone from a neighbouring club or something. They, they found the guy and he opened the club and we slept the first night in the alcoves on the little red leather seats. The second night we moved in the Bambi Kino and then we were there for ages, right. like two months, three months. We stayed in this place called the Bambi Kino. Where are we sleeping? Well, we'll head over the corner to the Bambi Kino. 
Right, which was a second-rate flea pit. A run-down sort of flea pit, you know, and we were living in the toilet next to the ladies' toilet, you know. And that was where we washed, you know. That was our bathroom. And we had just a little room right next to the toilet, so it was really kind of, you know, forget it. I mean, they wouldn't have allowed it, actually. Public health inspector, I'm sure, would have closed it down, but no-one looked, you know. And it was a bed, a camp bed, and a sofa. Paul and I were looking at one with them, and he turned around and said, well, where the hell are we going to stay? Now, what Paul and I had passed as we were coming up the hallway were two concrete dungeons, and we could talk to one another because there was a hole in the wall. <laughs> it was cold, there was no heating, you know. And this is at winter in Germany. Paul and I sort of looked at one another and sort of grimaced, and it was like, well, let's get on with it. And remember Rory Storm and his group coming with Ringo to see us. They arrived a bit later and came and saw the group in residency, came, to, came around to see how the groups were living. And they were really shocked because they, they remembered, like, we, we, one of us had a Union Jack over us to keep warm. Rory and I, or the band, we were staying in one room in the German Siemens mission. And that was luxury. Mm. Absolute bloody luxury because uh, before we got to the to the club, the Kaiser Keller, uh, Howie Casey, sax player from Liverpool, also played a lot with Paul McCartney uh, later on. They were sleeping for a while in the back of the club. And we'll never forget when we arrived and they said, yes, you, you know, now this is where you live. <laughs> and it was just like a couple of old settees and flags, Union Jacks. Like they were your sheets, you know. I said, well, we don't this, we've got suits, we're leaving, blah, blah, blah. So that's when we went to this life of luxury in the German <laughs> Siemens mission. <laughs> Everything else was such a buzz, you know, being mm. right in the middle of the naughtiest city in the world at 17 years old. It mm. was kind of exciting. And learning, you know, about, well, there's all the gangsters and there's the transvestites and there's the, you know, it was like that, there's the hookers. We got into, you know, making friends with the girls and there was, you know, call girls who sort of fancied us on stage. We fancied them, so, you know, the two got together and we enjoyed ourselves. At that time, we were just kids let off the leash, really, come straight from Liverpool to Hamburg. And we were used to these little Liverpool girls, but by the time you got to Hamburg, if you, if you got a girlfriend there, she was likely to be a stripper. She was the only kind of people who were around at the time we were around late at night there. So, I mean, you'd... For someone who'd not really had much sex in their lives before, which none of us really had, to be suddenly involved with a sort of hardcore striptease artist who obviously knew a thing or two about sex um, was quite an eye-opener. And uh, that was a, also a point in, of our lives where we found um, dexedrine poppers, you know, pills. And that's the only way we could continue, was to be on, you know. In Hamburg, because we had to work six or seven hours a night on stage with no rest, the waiters always had these pills called Prelidin and various other kind of pills. But I remember Prelidin because it was a big trip. And all the waiters were taking pills to keep themselves awake to work these incredible hours in sort of this like a Vegas type place, you know, it's an all night place. And so the waiters, when they'd see the musicians falling over with tiredness or with drink, they'd give you the pill. They'd say, here, if you take this, you can work. You know, you, you'd be all, you'd take the pill, you'd be talking, you'd sober up, you know, you could work 
almost endlessly until the pill wore off, then you'd have to have another. Preludium, they were called. You could buy them off of the counter, so we never thought we'd do anything, but you'd get really wired. Yeah. Know, and you'd go on for days. So with beer and, and preludium, that's how we survived. We used to just be up there frothing, you know, at the mouth, just foaming, just mm. stomping away, doing this so. <laughs> Those were the days. recorded you know because we were we were performers in Liverpool Hamburg and around the dance halls you know and what we generated was fantastic where well, we played straight rock and there was nobody to touch us in Britain you know we did start off in England and then we had an offer to play um, for a fellow called Bruno Koschmider in uh, Hamburg so we went over and we played there for about fear Monaten, vier Monaten, and um, from there, you know, it started really. In Germany, most of the time we were working. Every night we used to work mm. in Star Club mm. and on top ten on Kaiserkeller. The first two months that we were in Germany, the first time we played at a club called the Indra, which wasn't actually on the Reeperbahn. It was off the Reeperbahn. It was in a street called the Grosse Freiheit. And in those days we used to work eight hours a night. We'd start at six and finish at two in the morning. We first went to a place called the Indra, yeah. which was shut down, and then we went to the Kaiserkeller, and then we went to the Top Ten, which is probably the best one on the Reaper Barn. And it was really, at that time, it was fantastic. Echo on the microphones, really? and you know, it was really a gas. And we got a big repertoire of some of our own songs but mainly all the old rock and roll things and the stuff from records we used to get from Brian Epstein's shop before we met him. We used to do all those Barrett Strong, you know, Money yeah, and yeah. all that, Chuck Berry, Little right. Richard, all the rock and roll things. Yeah. With this thing we had to play all the tunes for hours and hours and on end, you know. That's why every ch song lasted 20 minutes and had 20 solos in it, you know. Right. But we'd be playing about eight or ten hours a night or something. And that's what improved the playing, you know, because also the Germans liked heavy rock. We've been to Hamburg, and I think that's where we um, found our style. We developed our style because of this fellow there, he used to say, you've got to make a show for the, the people. And he used to come up every night shouting, Max Schau. So we used to Max Schau, and John used to dance around like a gorilla, and we'd all you know, knock our heads together and things like that. Anyway, we got back to Liverpool and all the groups that were doing this sort of shadows type of stuff. And uh, we came back, leather jackets and jeans and funny hair, macking shower, which went down quite well. 
So we learned a lot of uh, stagecraft in getting people in, and we gradually did. You know, we'd learn tricks. They put us in a little club called the Indra, which means India. And uh, they put us in this club, and then they uh, had to close the club down because we made too much noise, which seemed strange because the whole place was just filled with noise, you know, all these nightclubs. And the police closed down the first club because we were too loud, you know. And then it, was, it was right at the end of, not the Reaper Bomb, but uh, the other little street that goes off, which I can't remember the name of at the moment. And we were nearly in the housing district, you know, we were right off the... We turned up this particular night, and there was a big notice across the door, closed, Gishloshevich. And we turned around to Bruno Koshmid and said, what the hell's going on? You know, we built the Indra up into, you know, a great rock and roll club for you. Um, where are we going to go? And he said, you will now play at the Kaiser Keller. So then they moved us to another place called the Kaiser Keller. Then he moved us to, to his other club, which is larger, and where they danced, there was more dance space and beer tables. The Kaiser Keller means the king's cellar. So we had to do the whole thing over again then. We had to build up our audience there, and it was a bigger club, so you had to build up more people. People were coming in to watch us, and this is where Klaus basically comes into the frame. We made friends with a lot of people. There was, um... The ones who became our real friends were the ones who, like, who are known now as Klaus Bormann. Well, the first impression was that this was a different group, number one, and the band came out with Stuart first, going up on stage, and he had those glasses on with a sunnies on top, and he looked real good. So this must be the leader of the band. So that was the first impression. And then everybody plugged in, and I think Paul was the one who came up and said, hello, everybody, and kind of making a little um, saying hello. And the place still wasn't packed. And I just started playing. And from that moment on, I was just knocked out. It was just incredible. Never seen a band like that. Jürgen Vollmann. They had black leather jackets and tight black pants and pointed shoes, all black. And they had that rocker image, particularly John, because he... You know, he played this young, tough Marlon Brando type. And, uh, yeah, I, I remember that. And I was actually afraid of him. I never felt quite comfortable in John's presence because he had the tendency to, to be ironic. He was uh, he making sarcastic remarks occasionally because 
particularly when he felt the other person was, uh, well, I was very shy at the time and uh, felt uncomfortable, and he probably also felt has a certain uncertainty about himself, um, and he tried to make up for it. You know, he didn't want to show that. He wanted to come off as a, you know, self-assured macho type. And Astrid, mm -hmm. who took all the famous photographs of us at that period. When I came down to the Kaiser Keller with Klaus then, after he had to persuade me for three days, I just freaked out. Seeing them on stage, faces I always dreamt of taking pictures of, because they had so much personality. And being that excited, I couldn't have spoken to them. So Klaus introduced me to them, because he has, from the couple of days before, became to know them. And uh, they were just lovely, you know. They sort of nodded and said hi, and John did his, you know, I'm a man, I'm a man thing. And Paul was doing his, uh, I'm a good boy, good education bit, you know, said hello and get, shook my hand and George was just looked at me and said, oh, hello, and you were Klaus's girlfriend. But he was ever so sweet. Stuart and I, we just looked at one another, you know, and that was it. It was like flashlights, you know, like there are no words. It's just thoughts, you know, not even thoughts. It's just a feeling. I had, that that was it, that was my man. I could not believe he was standing with his back to the audience and he wore sunglasses because he was nearly blind like John, but John wouldn't wear glasses or sunglasses. That looked just amazing to me. They liked all the rock and roll stuff, the quiffed back hairdos, all that kind of thing, the leather outfits the shades. Um, they weren't really rockers or mods like we'd seen. There was something in the middle. They called themselves exes, existentialists. They were art students, really. <laughs> Astrid took them to, the, to her house and she cooked for them. Astrid's mother was cooking the favorite meals for them. So they had their little home suddenly, which Astrid really took care of them really well. Yeah, it was really good for us to meet them too. They in themselves were very artistic. I mean, for us, we started hanging out with them. And Astrid was so loving, she really helped us a lot. first time I met them, they were teaching Stu the bass um, in a club called the Jacaranda. And we'd just got this job to go professional, you know. So, and we had suits and shoes and ties. I mean, we were, we were doing it then. It was like, it's Rory Song and the Hurricanes, look out. You know, so we got this gig and we went down there and we were talking. And that was the first time I ever saw them. 
and they were sort of pulling it together. And um, by the time we all met up in Germany, they were playing one club, we were playing another. Um, they were just great by then. And I used to like, because we used to do long hours, we used to do 12 hours at a weekend between two bands uh, when we ended up on the same club. And I, so if they had the last set, I'd sort of be semi-drunk and demanding they play slow songs. Play the Remember Ringo used to come in very late at night. He liked the sort of blues sessions when there was no, not many people there. And I can see what he liked too, and we'd be, we're getting down by then and we'd pulling out all the B-sides. We used to do a thing called 3.30 Blues. And I only found out later, because I was still this teddy boy, uh, I found out from John that they were a bit frightened of me. problems with Stuart. Uh, we, that, was, that was who I used to have the kind of ding-dongs with. I say I wish we hadn't, because, you know, it wasn't me ousted him at all, you know, although I say we did have arguments, but we weren't arch enemies, really. See, because I, I claim that what I was trying to do was make sure we were musically very good. But this did create a couple of rifts, and I can see now how I could have been more sensitive to it. But who's sensitive at that age? Certainly not me. We realised his limitations. You know, he, he wasn't the best of bass players. There were, you know, lots of bad, you know, bass players around who were better than him, but you'll always get that. Um, but what people failed to realize was he gave 200%, you know, and if you, you know, give 200% of yourself on stage, it comes out in your music, you know, but he, he wasn't as bad as people made out. We had our sticky moments. We had a fight on stage one night, which I assumed I'd win because he wasn't that big. Mm. But, the, the, but the, 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 the manic, you know, the, the strength of love or something entered into him and he was no easy match at all. We just lay, we were locked for about half an hour. <laughs> oh, God, oh, bloody God, go on. And they had to actually, I think, poured water on us in the end, you know. But uh, no, they had to sort of pull us apart. One of these real bloody teenage efforts, you know. And we were just, you know, very flushed after it and stuff. But, uh, you know, these things happen. I was 17 and when we first went out there and we went to the Indra Club and then got moved to the Kaiser Keller, and then that ended up with us getting the gig to go to the top 10 club. And right before that happened, I got busted for being underage. Now, they had this kind of situation in Germany, which I'd never come across before, which was a curfew. Um, and after 
10 o'clock at night, anybody who was under 18 had to get out. We were deported from Hamburg. First George was deported, and then Paul, and I was the only one old enough to stay there. Now then finally, uh, I was deported too. Somebody found out we didn't have any work permits or visas, and I didn't, I was underage anyway. So they started closing in on us, and uh, the police came one day, and then they just booted me out. And that was right at a critical time, because we decided we'd been offered a job to go to this other club. Which is called the Top Ten. It was a slightly better club. It was on the main Reaper Barn. The other two clubs had been on Grocer Fry Out, which is off the main drag. We moved over to the Top Ten Club, uh, quite fast, in fact. And I left Paul, and I having to go back and get our belongings. And of course, being good living lads in Hamburg, we had some condoms on us. So as we were leaving, uh, me and Pete Best uh, were packing up, and we were the last to leave. And he found a condom in his luggage. And what we did, just for a laugh, was outside in the um, corridor, concrete. There was not, nothing could have caught fire at all. We pinned it up on the wall, and for a boyish prank, we set fire to it. So it left a little sort of little black sort of rubber stain on the wall. And that was like, you know, right, we're going, hey, hey, on to better things. But of course, the fellow wasn't pleased we were going to the new club anyway, because this was competition. We were taking all our business, all his business, to this new club. So he immediately rang up the police, and we were just sort of walking down the reaper bombs. Come with me. And we were put in jail for about three hours, first time in our lives, you know. And, um, you know, it was only the next morning when we were actually arrested by the German police uh, and taken to Davidstrasse police station and questioned for many, many hours uh, that we found out that we had been threatened with trying to burn the Bambikino down, mm -hmm. you know, which has never held up water, as we've always turned around and said, you know, how the hell can you burn a concrete cinema down? It's just, you know, it's not practical. Um, but they wouldn't listen to us, and Paul and I were deported. And then flew them back to England, deported mm. them. So I got back to England all forlorn on my own, and we found out they were already back ahead of me. <laughs> so that was quite good. And then John came back a few days after them, because there was no point in him staying there. I was the only one old enough to stay there, and I was working with the, the house band in, for another month or so after the others had left. I was left there on my own. I came home on my own, you know, with no money and just carrying amplifiers and guitars. And I thought, is this what I want to do, man? You know, I mean, I was always a sort of poet or a painter. But I thought, is this it, you know, this sort of nightclubs and seedy sort of scenes, you know, and being deported and, and sort of weird people in the clubs. I mean, it was really sort of, nowadays they call it decadence, but those days it was just in Hamburg, you know, or, or clubs that groups played at, strip clubs and all the stuff. And I thought hard about, you know, should I continue doing this? And I came home from uh, Hamburg on my own on the train through Holland. It was pretty scary and I felt, mm -hmm, well, I did it, you know. I got home, I didn't call the other Beatles for three weeks. And they were mad at me because I hadn't called them. And even in Liverpool, if they didn't call me, I didn't come. And Stuart just stayed there because he decided to get variety-hearted with Astrid. It was really, you know, it was really nice because we, uh, we got together there. That was the first time we really played long hours. By the time we came back to England, we were you know, quite good.
Thank you. Thank you, folks. Thank you. Thank you for everything. I hope you're still playing our records. Thank you. We've had a marvellous time. And we may see all of you soon. Goodbye. End of part one. It's such a load of rubbish. <laughs>